But we're in our message series on the life of Jesus and the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man, performing miracles and, and most importantly, teaching about who he is and what life is all about. And we know that the life of Jesus is documented in four books that are contained within the Bible that are called the Gospels. They're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and John were disciples who actually lived and walked with Jesus during the three years he ministered on the earth. And Luke was a historian and a physician who was alive at a similar time and researched Jesus for himself and wrote his gospel as a historical document. Today, we're gonna begin in the Gospel of Matthew and then later on, we'll turn to the Gospel of Mark. And as always, you don't have to agree with what I teach today. So let's just exhale and relax for a moment because we are going to be talking about a serious subject. We're going to be talking about divorce today. And I can't possibly cover every angle on this in one message today. I can't make it a message on divorce and also marriage. I can't talk about all the dangers and everything you could do. That would be about six messages worth of content. So I'm gonna do the very best that I can to talk through the words of Jesus as he speaks on the subject of divorce. And what I would encourage you right at the beginning to recognize is that God is the author. He's the designer of marriage. He's the inventor of marriage. And so it's worth tuning in any time he talks about it, any time that he talks about it. And I'm going to simply share what I believe Jesus is sharing in his word today. You know, statistically, divorce should impact around half of the couples in the average church. Statistics tell us that of those who remarry, an even higher percentage will end up getting divorced. So what do we do with that? That's the reality. Those are the factual figures. Well, I would begin by encouraging all of us, whether we've been through divorce or not, to humbly and clearly recognize that our culture's attitude toward marriage is not working. It's simply not working. And the figures back that up. It's not working the majority of the time. And for that reason alone, we should tune in to the words of Jesus, the one who designed marriage, and pay close attention to what he says on the subject. And I'd also say this before we get into it. Marriage and divorce are definitive things. They're moments that change everything enormously in our lives. And if as we work our way through the text this morning, you realize you got a divorce you should never have gotten or you married someone you shouldn't have and that led to the breakdown of that marriage. You can't go back and change what's been done. But you may need to ask the Lord's forgiveness for it so that he can bring some healing and some wholeness into your life. And so for that reason, I'm gonna ask you to just stay for the whole message because you wanna make sure you understand where we're going to end up at the end. Because as we're gonna find out, while God hates divorce, he doesn't hate divorcees. He loves you. With all of our issues, with all of our mistakes, he loves us. And one of the things I love so much about Jesus is that he always tells us the truth even when it's difficult to hear. And so with humble, open hearts, not defensive or anxious hearts, let's get into our study and let's hear from God because we know that our heavenly Father always and only does what is best for his children you and I. So let's begin in that place of trust, trusting that our heavenly Father loves us this morning. Let's jump in. Matthew 19, verse 1. 
Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. In Mark's gospel, it will tell us that Jesus taught them again. And I just share that so we never forget the primary focus of Jesus' ministry was not the miracles, but the message. The message of hope that man can have his relationship with God restored. We can be forgiven. We can be made whole. That's the greatest miracle anyone could experience. So let me give you some background as we get into this to set the scene. Divorce and remarriage were very, very hot topics in Jesus' day, just as they are today, even in the church. Debated constantly and highly controversial, people were talking about divorce and remarriage. And there were two prominent schools of thought, both championed by rabbis, the leading philosophical and religious voices of the day. It was about a 50-50 split among the Jewish people as to who was considered right. And it all centered on part of the law of God that God had given to Moses in Deuteronomy 24. It's in Deuteronomy 24.1. I put it on your outlines. It reads, when a man takes his wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness, underline some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. So the debate was around the question of what some uncleanness referred to. Here's what's interesting. It could not be adultery or sexual immorality. Do you know why we know that? Because the penalty for adultery and sexual immorality was being stoned to death, which precludes the possibility of future remarriage fairly definitively. So, we know that it wasn't talking about adultery or sexual immorality. And so they would debate among themselves, well, what does this mean, some uncleanness? Some of your Bibles will say some impurity. Rabbi Shammai was very conservative, and he taught that marriage was sacred, and the only acceptable reason for divorce was when a husband discovered his wife had committed sexual immorality before they were married. In that case, she wouldn't necessarily be stoned, but he could divorce her. On the other side, Rabbi Hillel was very liberal and he said, no, 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 no. Moses said that divorce was permissible if a husband finds some uncleanness in his wife. And he expounded on that verse, taking it all the way to the point where he said, if your wife causes some uncleanness in you, then she's really the one who is unclean. So if your wife does anything that frustrates you or makes you angry, Being angry is a sin, and so your wife is causing you to sin, so she is unclean, and you can put her away and divorce her. This could be caused by something as benign as her oversalting the eggs. So those who followed this rabbi would divorce their wife whenever they decided, eh, I'm tired of her, because there would always be some justification they could make under that interpretation of the law. And in today's study, we're going to find out what Jesus has to say on the subject because people wanted to know, just like we want to know today. That wasn't all that was going on. There was an ulterior motive held by those who were going to ask Jesus about divorce. And we're going to find that it's the Pharisees who asked Jesus about divorce, the same Pharisees who are committed to seeing Jesus murdered. And the reason that asking him his opinion on divorce may accomplish this goal is this. 
Herod Antipas was the governor of Judea at this time. It's the territory that they're in. It's right next to Perea where they are. Israel was under Roman occupation and Herod Antipas was the man Rome had placed in charge of this region of Israel. And Herod was a a truly terrible man who was responsible for having John the Baptist executed. And the reason John the Baptist ended up being executed was really because he spoke out against Herod's marriage. For you see, Herod had divorced his first wife intentionally so that he could steal his half-brother's wife, Herodias, from Rome and bring her back to Judea with him. And she was game for it because he had a more prominent position than her previous husband did. So John the Baptist looked on at this and said publicly, this is wickedness. The man in charge of Israel, part of God's country, has a marriage that's built on adultery. This is outrageous. Unsurprisingly, that message wasn't very well received by Herod and his court, and it led to Jay the Bee being thrown into prison, which made him available to be executed as the result of an incident that would later take place at one of Herod's parties. So the Pharisees are thinking, this is great. Firstly, however Jesus answers, he's going to alienate half the people in the audience. He's going to tick off half the people, this is great. And if he takes a firm line on the issue of divorce like Rabbi Shammai, then we can just mention to Herod Antipas that he's speaking against his marriage and Herod may kill Jesus for us. So that's the scene. That's the trap that's about to be sprung by the enemies of Jesus. Verse three, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him. You can underline testing. That's how we know what their motivation was. And saying to him, is it lawful, underline lawful, for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? So firstly, we know their ulterior motive, but also understand the question. They're not saying, should a man divorce his wife for any reason? They're talking about technicalities. Is it lawful? Is it legal? They're not interested in in what's righteous. It's just, what's the technical answer to this question? They're asking him, do you side with Rabbi Hillel and agree that divorce should be a simple and easy thing? Verse 4. And he answered and said to them, underline this, have you not read? I love that because what Jesus is saying is he begins with, don't you read your Bible? Don't you know what the scriptures say? I've shared this before, but when I was a teenager, well, actually now still, my my favorite wrestler when I was watching wrestling growing up was The Rock because The Rock had the best shtick of all time. Uh, His character was just so fantastically ridiculous. And one of the things he would do is, he would talk to another wrestler or one of the announcers and he would ask them, well, what do you think? And then as soon as they would begin to answer, he would yell in their face, it doesn't matter what you think. And it was just fantastically hilarious. And that's pretty much what Jesus is doing here when they ask him this question. Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what Rabbi Shammai thinks. It doesn't matter what Rabbi Hillel thinks. Don't you read your Bible? Don't you know what God says? That's the only opinion that matters. And what a timeless lesson this is for all of us because it's so easy for us to ask other people what they think and then go with the answer that resonates with us the most. And you know what I've discovered? The answer that resonates with us the most, that witnesses with our spirit, is usually coincidentally the exact thing we most want to do. Isn't it funny that when you're looking for confirmation to do something, 
you connect, you resonate with the advice of those who affirm the exact thing that you want to do, our emotions are not trustworthy. But what is helpful is learning to ask the godly people in our lives, what do you think the word says about this? What do you believe the word says about this? And we take the issue, the conversation back to the word of God. We ask what he says about it. And then through godly conversation with godly people, we're able to apply what the word says to our lives, which is exactly what Jesus is gonna do here. They wanna talk about marriage and divorce, so Jesus is going to take them back to school, the school of the scriptures. Make a note of this. Jesus models the importance of seeking answers to life's questions in the scriptures. Jesus models the importance of seeking answers to life's questions in the scriptures. You Bible students, there's an important principle of hermeneutics, which is simply the skill of interpreting the scriptures. It's called the principle of first mention, and all it means is that on any given subject, it's valuable and worthwhile to go to the first place it shows up in the scriptures because you will usually find there some vital foundational truths that will help you to interpret everything else the Bible says about that issue accurately. And that's what Jesus is going to do here. He's taking the discussion all the way back to Genesis 2. Creation, the first man and woman, the first marriage. And he says, have you not read that underline, he who made them at the beginning? He who made them at the beginning. So he's saying, let's find out about God, who's actually him, the one who made man and woman made them male and female, and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and, and then underline, the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate, underline man. So there's a few things we need to point out while we're here, and, the, and these are things I'm just pointing out because we're here, that's why we're gonna talk about these things. Firstly, here we see Jesus affirming the sexual and marital relationship as being between one man and one woman. Jesus is explicitly saying, that's how it was at the beginning, that's how I designed it to be. And I share this because you'll sometimes hear people say, well, Jesus never said anything about being gay or bisexual or having more than one spouse. Yes, he did, right here. He explicitly, with no room for confusion, affirms, confirms that his design, God's design, is one man, one woman in marriage. That's it. That's it. And I don't share that to condemn, but I share that because I don't want any of us to be confused about what the Word of God says. You may disagree, and if I'm honest, I would say that any other opinion is out of step with God, it's sinful, you may disagree, but you cannot be confused about what the word of God says. It's very, very clear. So make a note of this. Jesus affirms his design for marriage and sex as being between one man and one woman. He doesn't allow for any other interpretation. One man, one woman. Secondly, I want us to pick up on what Jesus is doing in this discussion. He's saying, you guys are getting bogged down in the details in the nuances, the technicalities, but you're forgetting God's heart in all of this. God's heart 
is that marriage be a supernatural bond between a man and a woman. Two becoming one flesh. And you need to remember that all the way back in Genesis, God said he would join a man and a woman together. Did you pick up on that? God said he would be the one who would make them one. That's profound. The Lord himself says that when a man and a woman enter into marriage, he supernaturally joins them together. He blesses their union and they become one flesh. God blesses their intimacy on multiple levels and they become one. That was God's design and intent for marriage. So before he gets to anything else, Jesus wants everyone to recognize that when divorce enters the picture, something has gone horribly wrong. Something has happened that is very different to what God intended marriage to be. And again, I don't say that to be condemning. I say that because it's the truth of the word. And we need to be honest with ourselves before the Lord. I think we all understand that this is true because no sane person willingly gets married hoping it will end in divorce. I had to add the word sane in there because there are some insane people who get married hoping it will end in divorce. But nobody writes on a wedding card, hope you have five great years and then an amicable split. Nobody does that because we all recognize that if there is divorce, however you want to frame it, something's gone horribly wrong. We all get that. And you know what the other evidence is? It's that none of us who have kids would ever tell our kids, you're going to get married one day and it might not work out. But don't worry about it, because if that happens, you can just call it off and try again with someone else until you find one that works. None of us would ever sit down with our kids, put them on our lap, and tell them that. Give them that vision for their future. Why? Because we all understand something's gone very wrong if divorce has entered the picture. Even though we might claim that our story is, no, 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 it was a great thing, only a good thing. When push comes to shove, we wouldn't tell our kids that because we understand, make a note of this, that there's always a price to divorce. There's always a price to divorce. Jesus told us that in marriage, two become one flesh, and when that one flesh is ripped apart into two again, there's damage inflicted on both individuals. There are wounds, there are scars. A part of you leaves with them, and that leaves us with issues that we have to confront in our future marriages that if we're honest, We know we would not have had to deal with these issues had we not been previously married and divorced. And if there's kids involved, there's a whole other sphere of challenges and issues that will need to be navigated. So please understand me. I'm not saying that every divorce is unjustified or wrong. I'm saying the Bible makes it clear that something's gone wrong when divorce enters our lives and that it does have an effect on us for the rest of our lives. And when I talk about having to deal with issues... Those of you who have been divorced and remarried, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You you know I'm telling the truth. You know that it's not hopeless, but you know there are still issues that need to be navigated because of those previous marriages. Praise God, he's gracious. He gives us second chances. And I've seen many previously divorced people remarry and have strong marriages. But you know what the common thread is in those successful remarriages? Those people are honest about how their previous marriages and divorces affected them. And they're faithful to seek the help and grace of God to deal with navigating those issues in their new marriage. Those who pretend that it had no effect on them, you're sort of doomed from the start. If you can't even acknowledge the effect it's had on you, how are you gonna confront those issues and work through them with the grace of God? 
There's always hope and there's always grace, but there is always a price to divorce. And Jesus is saying before we get into a theology of divorce, we need to remember that divorce was never a part of God's original plan and we should be grieved when we find ourselves in the midst of an unfolding divorce. It's not a light thing to the Lord. Thirdly, I want to point this out. In verse 6, Jesus reminds us that at the beginning, in the garden, God said, there are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And I had you underline man because in that I see another exhortation for us to look to the word of God for guidance in our marriage because man will try to destroy your marriage. Do you know this? Man society, our culture, media, the world around you, which the Bible says is governed by Satan right now, is out to destroy your marriage. You see, man will publish article after article in women's magazines talking about how you should feel like a princess with butterflies in her stomach every time you see your man. And if you don't, it's a sign that it's time to move on. Man will fill movies and TVs with subtle teardowns of marriage like Referring to a man's wife as a ball and chain or the old lady. Or having every husband on TV appear to be an absolute idiot. Implying that marriage is really a prison sentence. Rather than the greatest earthly blessing that a person can receive. Man is constantly promoting pornography. One of Satan's favorite tools because it's so wildly successful at accomplishing its true goal, which is making spouses sexually dissatisfied with each other and planting the idea in our minds that maybe there's someone else out there in porno land who could really satisfy us in a whole much better way. That's Satan's great goal with porn. It's to destroy marriages and make us dissatisfied with what God has given us. Man will tell you lies like, if you meet someone and just feel drawn to them, it's the universe telling you, you made a mistake in marrying your current spouse, and it's just not fair to keep them in a relationship when you know it's not really what's best for either of you. Man will try and destroy your marriage, tear it down, undermine it. The Lord says, don't let man separate what God has joined together. So make a note of this. God's word, not man, is our counsel on navigating marital issues. God's word, not man, is our counsel on navigating marital issues. Oprah doesn't have the answers you're looking for. People on TV who've been married four times don't have the answers that you're looking for. God knows celebrities don't have the answers you're looking for. In verse 7, they said to him, well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? So they just missed the entire point of what Jesus has said, which is going to the heart of marriage and the heart of what God wants for marriage. So they now misrepresent something that Moses did in the Old Testament when he was charged with leading the people of Israel. They're making it sound like Moses said, listen, uh, you guys are having far too many stable marriages. We need more divorces, so I'm passing a law to help you guys get divorced more easily. That's not what happened at all, and Jesus will explain that in the next verse, verse 8. He, Jesus, said to them, Moses, underline, because of the hardness of your hearts... And then underline the next word, permitted 
you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. That wasn't the way it was meant to be. We know his design was for one man and one woman to be joined in marriage. Did you know this? Uh, Forever on the earth because God created marriage for Adam and Eve before man sinned and so they, they wouldn't have died. His plan was for them to be together till the earth ended, whatever that would have been even before death came into the picture. But humanity sinned, rejected God, death came into the world, and now we all have to deal with the fact that we have sin natures. And guess where one of the easiest places is for us to reveal our sin nature? In marriage. What was happening in Moses' day was that husbands were divorcing their wives for reasons that weren't valid. They were having hard hearts toward God, ignoring what God wanted marriage to be, and were just bailing on their marriages even though they knew that wasn't the will of the Lord. And so the Lord told Moses to make sure that the husband issued his wife a certificate of divorce. And that certificate was for the benefit of the wife because on it had to be listed the reason for the divorce and the man giving the certificate would have to prove that reason. So we couldn't just say, my wife tries to kill me in my sleep. He would have to prove it. And so on the marriage certificate, it would say things like, she oversalted the eggs. This made me angry and caused me to sin. And this would protect the woman because it would make it easier for her to get remarried because her next husband would be able to look at that and realize she didn't get divorced because she cheated on her husband. It's because her husband was kind of being a jerk to her. So it was to protect the woman. And don't miss this. Don't miss this. Make a note of this. God's purpose in creating a certificate of divorce was to prove a wife's innocence and enable her to get remarried. It was to prove the wife's innocence to enable her to get remarried. So Jesus tells them, God didn't tell Moses that he wanted you to get divorced. You were just so hard-hearted that God had to step in and protect women who were being victimized by husbands who were abandoning them for invalid reasons. So get this, all the way back in the Old Testament, under the law, the Lord made a way for a person to get remarried when they were abandoned by a hard-hearted spouse or had been the victim of spousal adultery. That's in the Bible. That is affirmed here by Jesus. So those who would say remarriage is against the Bible are grossly oversimplifying what the Word says and what Jesus affirmed from his own mouth. Now, I do need to mention something, though. The first four verses of Deuteronomy 24 are what's being referred to here by Jesus and the Pharisees, and it was what was debated by Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai and their followers. That passage allows for remarriage under the assumption that a person is not guilty of committing adultery. So it allows for remarriage for the innocent party in that situation. It does not, however, Allow for remarriage for the person who committed adultery or sexual immorality. Again, in fact, I'm 100% confident it doesn't allow for remarriage for the person who committed adultery. Why? Because they would have been stoned to death. That's how we know. When I was preparing this message, you know, I was thinking, but Lord, this is so, so common. Affairs are so common, adultery is so common and no remarriage, it seems so harsh. And the Holy Spirit had to remind me that just because sin is common everywhere, even in the church, it doesn't mean that we get to come up with a new interpretation for God's word 
that excuses our sin and frees us from the consequences of our sin. In Proverbs 32, the Lord says, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Not his spirit, not risking your salvation, but his soul, what we would call the heart, the emotions. And the Lord says when we commit adultery, we mess something up within ourselves, something that disqualifies us from being married again in the future. And Perhaps it's the reality that the odds of us repeating that mistake are simply too high. And in the eyes of the Lord, it wouldn't be fair to bring another believer into a marriage where their spouse would be such a high risk to be unfaithful to them again. We're going to unpack this a little more, but I want to ask you to make a note of this. God is the creator and designer of marriage, and he has the right to determine the rules. Because God is the creator and designer of marriage, he has the right to determine the rules. And I share that in case any of us have the reaction, that's not fair. He has the right to determine the rules. He's the creator of man and woman. He's the creator of marriage. He gets to make the rules. As Christians, we are under the word of God. The government of Canada may say we can do things one way. But that doesn't make it right. You and I are citizens of heaven under the rule and reign of Jesus. We answer to him even ahead of the government. Now if you have committed adultery and you are now remarried, you should not go divorce your current spouse. That's not going to fix anything. It's not that you're living in adultery and you need to end your current marriage you now need to stay in that marriage. What it means, what the Bible is saying is that when you came together for the first time sexually with your new spouse, it was adultery in the eyes of the Lord. And I just have to tell you that the Bible says that. So you need to repent of that, you need to be forgiven, and you need to allow the grace of God to help make your current marriage one that lasts. But if, if you've never repented for that, and your adultery or sexual immorality is what caused the end of your last marriage. You need to repent for that. And you need to own that. And you need to recognize you didn't do things God's way in getting to your current marriage. Because you don't know if you not repenting for that is having a profound effect or holding back the blessing of God on your current marriage. You want to take care of that. That's what the Bible says. In verse 9, Jesus says, And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. This is an often misinterpreted verse. So notice this. Jesus has just referenced certificates of divorce, which God instructed Moses to give out so that abandoned woman could get remarried. So it doesn't make sense that Jesus would then turn around and say, but God changed his mind. And now anybody who remarries commits adultery. Anybody. That doesn't make sense because that would be inconsistent. And God's never inconsistent. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. When I examine the character of God throughout the entirety of the scriptures, I find it very hard to believe those who say, what God is saying is you can only get divorced if your spouse commits adultery. So you believe that God expects a woman to stay in a marriage where the husband is consistently abusing her. 
you believe that biblical theology is that she should go back for a few more punches every day. You believe that because you're saying you do if you hold the position that only in the case of adultery can a couple get divorced. My pastor told me about one of the pastors who worked with him at a church who was a a biblical counselor and he was a a hardliner on this issue. Nope, the only reason for divorce is marital unfaithfulness. And there would be people in abusive situations and he would just keep saying that. Nope, only marital unfaithfulness. And then one day his own daughter knocked on his door late at night with two black eyes and bruises all over her face from her own husband. And let me tell you, his theology changed very, very quickly. Very, very quickly. You just simply cannot be acquainted with the God of the Bible and come to the conclusion that that's the will of God. That's what he wants that woman to do. That's not the character of the God that we serve. So what does verse 9 mean? Well, if you unpack the original language for this verse, it would really read more like this. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for the purpose of sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced for the purpose of sexual immorality commits adultery. In other words, if you are married and someone else catches your eye, steals your heart, and you divorce your spouse in order to go be with that person, Jesus said that's just adultery. It's adultery. If you try to offend your spouse or create issues that will lead to divorce in your marriage so that you can leave that marriage and be with someone else specific, it's adultery. If you say, I wish I was married to him so I'll have an affair with him, which will cause my current husband to divorce me, then I'll be free to marry the guy I really want to be with, it's adultery. Jesus is saying you can dress it up however you like. You can use verses out of context however much you want, but the bottom line is it's just plain old adultery. Because that's what they were doing. Men would find what they considered to be a potential upgrade and would then find some uncleanness in their wives to use as grounds for divorce. So make a note of this. Jesus was saying, leaving your spouse in order to pursue another specific person is adultery. Leaving your spouse in order to pursue another specific person is adultery. There are valid reasons for divorce, but desiring an upgraded model that you've already picked out is not one of them. Mark's gospel tells us that the disciples want to talk with Jesus further about this, and so they raise the subject later again in private. And you can sort of imagine that as Jesus is teaching, the disciples are sitting there nodding, you know, stroking their beards with their fingers, trying to look like they're really tracking with Jesus. And then later on when they get in private, they're like, whoa, 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 Jesus. Like, you, you got to explain this to me. Are you really saying what we think you're saying? And here's what's interesting, because based on what they asked Jesus, it's clear that they were sided with the liberal rabbi Hillel, because they say in verse 10, if such is the case of the man with his wife, well, it's better not to marry. So here are the fathers of the early church literally saying, if you're saying that I don't have an easily executable escape clause, that I've got to stick with her even if I find someone better, like probably better just not to marry. It's a little insight that shows us how much growing these disciples had to do and how much they needed the Holy Spirit in their lives, just as we need the Holy Spirit not only for the ministry of the gospel, but for the ministry of marriage. 
Because we don't tend to naturally think in a godly direction. We tend to naturally be selfish and serve our own needs and interests. And that's why God's such a big fan of marriage. That's one of the biggest reasons he created it. Because we have so much selfishness to work out. Have you noticed that about yourself? I always tell people I had no idea how selfish I was until I got married. And then I had no idea how selfish I was until I had my first kid. My second kid. I'm on number six now, so apparently I got a lot to work through. The Lord has decided. So I imagine Jesus chuckling and just (laughs) shaking his head as he says in verse 11, all cannot accept the saying, but only those to whom it has been given. Translation, if you're called to be married, if you have that desire, God will give you the grace you need in order to be married. Sometimes we're unwilling to receive that grace. And sometimes it just doesn't come down to us at all. The other person decides that it's over. But if two people get married, love the Lord, and submit to the Lord, a good marriage is achievable through the grace of God. Now to understand verse 12, I have to explain to you what a eunuch is. Ah, the word of God. So a eunuch was someone who had been castrated. If you don't know what that means, look it up on your phone. For the purposes of working around women, they were not supposed to get involved with. For example, a eunuch may be placed in charge of a king's harem or to attend to some of the needs of the king's wives. And castration, uh, being made a eunuch, was a means of making sure he wasn't tempted to... um, He wasn't tempted. So Jesus says, if you're called to get married, God will give you the grace you need. Now he's going to speak to being single in verse 12. And he says... For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. In other words, some people are born without the chemical and physical drive to be in a sexual relationship with another person. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. Some people don't have that drive because it was physically removed. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And there are some people who are just so in love with the Lord that they have no desire for an earthly sexual relationship. They get everything they need in life by serving Jesus. I don't get it either, but God bless them. And then, I love this. Jesus is, Jesus is so chill. He just says, he who's able to accept it, let him accept it. In other words, whichever category you fall into, it's cool. If you know you're called to get married, go get married. If you know you're called to be single, be single. But don't lie to yourself about which category you fall into. Don't discover that you just suck at dating or being social and then say, maybe I'm called to be single. If you have the desire to be married, then you're probably not called to be single. It's not good to lie about which category you fall into. You can ask the priests of the Catholic Church how that works out. What did the Apostle Paul say? He said... It's better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul's hilarious because he even says, he says here, it's him talking, not the Lord. And he just says, his opinion is, uh, you know, if you can be single and serve God, it's a good thing. You can go wherever you want, wherever the Lord calls you. You got time, you got availability for the Lord to use you. And he says, you know, but but if you want to get married, it's not a sin, but you will have trouble and I would spare you. That's what Paul says in the Bible. And then he says, But you know what? It's better to marry than to burn with passion. In other words, if you're not called to be single, there's a side of this where it's like, listen, why do you need to get married? So you don't sin. You've just got too much passion running through your blood, too much testosterone going on. 
we need to get you married so you can stay righteous. And that's a valid, valid thing. Praise God. And don't judge anyone else based on the category that they fall into. They're different. Not better or worse, just different. What's important is that you be honest about the category that you're in and you strive to honor God in that part of your life. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is, hey, maybe you're called to be single, but if not, you need to know that what I've shared about marriage and divorce, it's the truth. This is God's standard. So where does all of this leave us? And I want to make sure that I'm as clear as I can be about what the Bible says on the subject of divorce. And in order to do that, I feel like we need to be very clear about when the Bible says divorce is permissible. Whether this is an issue you're dealing with personally or not, if you're not dealing with this, this is gonna help you hopefully counsel other people because I think most Christians are very, very confused when someone says, when is divorce allowable in the eyes of God? Most Christians don't have a good answer. We know and need to never forget that God's heart and desire is always for restoration in a marriage. Always, that's what the Lord desires to see. So we don't go into this saying, just give me something, something I can use to get out of my marriage. That's not the goal. The, the question is not, is it lawful? God's first desire is restoration in a marriage, but God recognizes that's not always possible. We also recognize, and the more you just see of life and, and people, you'll recognize that every marriage and relationship situation is unique. All of them. And each situation requires examination, prayer, and consideration through the lens of Scripture. With that in mind, let me share what we would consider the four biblically valid reasons for a marriage ending. The first one, you can write this down, is death. We found in our experience that death is fatal to a marriage. Some of you are wondering, does that mean I can kill them? No, that's still murder, still a sin. Let me be as clear as I can. You can't be involved in causing their death to happen in any way, shape, or form. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about accidental or natural death, not a planned murder, okay? So death is a valid ending to a marriage, and remarriage is permissible in that case. Nobody's done anything wrong. Secondly, write this down, and you have to write it this way, sexual immorality, sexual immorality. In verse 9, we saw Jesus use this phrase, sexual immorality, and it's worth underlining because sexual immorality includes all sexual activity outside of marriage. God designed all sexual activity to take place within marriage. Sexual immorality refers to all sexual activity outside of marriage, and that's important that the Bible uses that verbiage because it means that if a couple ends up in a counselor's office, one person can't say, well, we didn't technically commit adultery. We didn't do it technically. Because we all recognize that that technically doesn't stop it being devastating to the marriage, right? It's an important phrase because it means that we can't be addicted to internet porn unrepentantly and claim that, no, no, we're not being adulterous. It still falls under sexual immorality. We are engaging in sexual immorality. And as we will say today repeatedly, God's desire is for restoration. And I believe that God can supply the grace needed to heal a marriage where there's genuine repentance. But God understands that sometimes a wound is so deep, a person just can't move on from it. You know, if I grab a gun 
And I go shoot my wife in the head. And I cry out afterward, my God, what have I done? And I'm sorry. And I'm repentant. God will forgive me. But my wife will still be dead. And you may say, but God can raise the dead. Yes, he can, but it doesn't happen very often, does it? It doesn't happen very often. While God can restore a marriage in the event of adultery, the guilty party, the offender, does not have the right to demand forgiveness. They don't have that right. They don't have the right to go before their spouse and throw out some verses about restoration and demand forgiveness. Because the Bible, on the contrary, gives the victim the right to say, it's too much, I can't move on from this. The Bible gives that right to the victim. And so in that situation, you say, what's the biblical stance? The biblical stance is for us as a church to tell that person, it's up to you. Whether you stay and work on the marriage or want to try or want to leave, it's up to you. It's between you and the Lord. The Bible doesn't give us the authority to tell a person what they should do in that situation. That's between them and God. Number three, we're going to call it hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. This is what Jesus referred to when he said divorce was permitted under Moses. There's some situations where one spouse hardens their heart so much, there's nothing you can do but let go. We would consider hardness of heart to be a significant ongoing sin for which the person will not repent. You know, it would be so helpful if those situations were black and white, but they're not. Every situation is different. Every situation needs godly discernment. So let's just take the issue we're on, hardness of heart. And I'll give you an example. How long should a spouse wait for the other to change before it can be considered hardness of heart? I don't know. I hope that you're also humble enough to not feel like you can put a number on it. I don't know. I have no idea. Again, this is between the person and the Lord or for the Holy Spirit to reveal to the elders of the church what seems right, but we just can't come up with a number because it depends on what the issue is, right? Somebody's spouse is beating them. I don't know that you give that any time. Somebody's spouse is unrepentantly shooting up heroin in the bathroom and is high all day. How long do you wait? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that we have the right to tell the person in that situation unless the Lord speaks to the elders of the church clearly. They need to seek that godly counsel and that person who is pursuing that divorce needs to be convinced in their own spirit. They need to have God affirm that through godly counsel as well. There's no formula though. For that reason, let me just share a few examples of how we as a church um, may agree that there's a hardness of heart situation in a marriage that would allow for, for separation or for divorce. If there were any type of ongoing abuse, verbal, emotional, physical, or the continual danger of it, in other words, it, it could happen again anytime, we would encourage at minimum an immediate separation. And I hope I'm being clear. I'm, I'm talking about situations that are dangerous going forward. I'm not talking about the fact that you and your spouse had a heated argument and now you come to the pastor and say, he's being emotionally abusive, I need a divorce. You're not special. Everybody has fights, okay? I'm talking about repeated emotional, verbal abuse 
I don't say repeated physical abuse because I don't think you need to wait to be hit 10 times before you get help for that. You need to do something about that immediately. And if you're ever in a situation like that ever, you need to get out of it. Call us. Talk to one of us. Email us and we'll help. We'll be there. We'll show up. A similar situation would be something like a, a spouse who is using drugs habitually and it's causing dangerous people to be around your children. And I want to be clear because this situation actually comes up more than you think. I'm not necessarily referring to pot because they might make your spouse a little bit more demotivated, but uh, pot doesn't generally cause somebody to become an abusive spouse. I I'm talking about dangerous drugs that bring people into your home, that make your home a dangerous place. And especially if you've got kids, you should recognize in that situation we'd tell anyone, you're at risk of going to prison as an accomplice if the police come and bust on your door and then your kids aren't going to have a mom or a dad. You need to get out now. And then we're going to work on the situation while we're separated, while we're separated. Or this happens, they leave and they say, I'm not sleeping with anybody else, but I'm not coming back. And they've just left. Or they just leave. And they abandon you. After a period of time, we may agree that there's a release there. Again, how long? I, I don't know. I don't know. It's really between the person and the Lord. Or a spouse says, I'm done having sex with you. Not physically attracted to you anymore. That part of our relationship is dead. God created marriage to be the only place where that need is met. And when you get married, you're agreeing and promising to your spouse that you will meet that need. That's the deal. You don't get to say, this is the only place you can get that itch scratched and then refuse to scratch that itch. That's not fair. That's not how God designed marriage to be. In that situation, we may say, you know, that they've abandoned their spouse sexually, which the Bible says is a massive issue. Or perhaps a spouse says, I'm not sharing my money with you anymore. We can live under the same roof, but we're doing our finances separately. I'm, I'm not taking financial care of you anymore. Uh, we would say, hey, uh, they've abandoned their spouse. Those are just a few practical things, but again, every situation is different. Every situation demands reflection and, and prayer. Or lastly, number four, when a non-believing spouse wants to end the marriage. When a non-believing spouse wants to end the marriage. Paul the Apostle shares that his opinion on this issue is this. It's on your outlines. He says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they're holy. But if the unbeliever departs, in other words, wants to leave, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God's called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, this is the situation it's talking about. You get saved, but your spouse doesn't. And they end up saying, I can't handle this Jesus stuff you're always talking about. You're not the person I married. I want out. The Bible says you're released from the marriage because you're not going to win them to Jesus by refusing to sign the divorce papers. That's not going to overwhelm them with the kindness of God. You're just going to tick them off and make them more angry. That's what Paul means when he says, but we desire peace. He's saying if they want to leave, then let them leave. End the marriage. You see, in the verses that we just read, it uses the phrase willing to live with her. 
So if the husband's willing to live with her, it literally means pleased to live with her or happy to live with her. So the picture is that, say for example, a wife gets saved, the husband doesn't, but the husband says, hey, you know, I'm glad you're happy and I'm not really convinced about the whole Jesus thing, but I love you, I like you, and I still want to live with you, and you can go to church on Sundays, that's fine. The Bible says you should stay with him. You should stay with him if he's pleased to live with you. If, however, a spouse becomes hostile and antagonistic toward their spouse's new faith and says, you know, you can live in the house, but we're done. Or they say, we're not having sex anymore. We would say the believer is not bound to that marriage. In fact, even when they're overly hostile or antagonistic, we would say, look, that's clear evidence they're not happy to live with you now that you're a Christian. They're not pleased to live with you now that you're a Christian. And the Bible says there's release in that situation. Jesus wants to make sure we all understand that from the beginning it was not so. None of these issues were part of God's original design or intent for marriage. And so it's heartbreaking whenever a marriage breaks down for any reason. At this point, I'm just going to ask you to flip with me to Mark. It's the very next gospel we're in, Matthew. Turn to Mark 10, Mark 10, 13. And this incident is recorded in Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel, but in Mark's it shows up with a little bit more detail. That's why I'm going to ask us to turn there. Because this is not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence this happens in Matthew. It's not a coincidence this happens in Mark. That the flow of the scripture goes from Jesus talking about marriage and divorce to immediately having a bunch of children show up to interact with Jesus. You see, it's an intentional reminder that children are the ones who suffer the most when God's design is ignored. And two becoming one flesh is ripped apart by divorce The children are the ones who can become bitter and cynical toward mom and dad's faith. In the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, I think I put this on your outlines, it records some of God's grievances against the people of Israel. It records God's beef with all the things they're not doing and all the things they are doing that are wicked. And they're wondering, why has God abandoned us? And in the book of Malachi, God tells them why he's abandoned them. And here are two verses from the book of Malachi. God is saying, yet you say, for what reason? Why have you left us? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you've dealt treacherously. Yet she's your companion and your wife by covenant. You might want to underline covenant because it doesn't say contract. It says covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? Underline this next part. He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. That is God himself telling us that the reason he makes a husband and wife one with each other and the Holy Spirit is because he desires godly offspring. Generations that would grow up loving him. And the best chance that your kids, my kids have, of growing up to love the Lord is if they see mom and dad represent their heavenly father well in the context of the family. Divorce is one of Satan's greatest weapons against raising children who love the Lord. Satan loves to use divorce to raise angry children who blame God for mom or dad not being around. My life is about far more than me. Your life is about far more than you. Just just write this down. God's desire is godly marriages that produce godly children. 
Godly marriages that produce godly children. And then in verse 13 it says, Then they brought little children to him, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Without getting sidetracked, this verse just makes me long for heaven because if you want to know what you and I will be like in heaven, we'll be like children in the sense that we'll have no concept of evil or wickedness or violence. We'll not know shame or embarrassment or or self-consciousness. We'll not know fear. We'll just be free. You know, my kids, when they cross the suspension bridge at uh, Lynn Canyon, they bounce up and down on the bridge, right in the middle of the bridge, terrifying all normal, sane people. You know why they do that? Because they don't even know that they could fall and die. They don't even know that. It's, it's not even like a possibility in their minds. And so there's this relationship between a, a lack of fear and freedom and not being aware of everything bad that could happen. In heaven, here's the amazing thing. Nothing bad could happen. So we're not aware of it because those things don't even exist. Self-consciousness doesn't exist. Fear doesn't exist. Embarrassment doesn't exist. They're not even constructs that are present in any way, shape, or form. We're completely freed from those things to be like children in the best sense of the word. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Verse 15, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, he laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. Man, wouldn't it be interesting to see what happens in the life of a person who has been picked up as a child by Jesus, had him lay his hands on them and bless them. I wonder what the literal, direct, hands-on blessing of Jesus does in a person's life. I bet it's incredible. What a lesson this is from Jesus. The kingdom of God is meant to be received the way these little children approached Jesus. They recognized he was good. They were drawn to him. And there was just immediate total trust. There's just something about Jesus. They just wanted to be around him. You know, our faith is meant to be simple. We recognize that God is good. We're drawn to him. We trust him completely. And then we rest in that trust in every area of life, including marriage. For those of you who've already been through a divorce and there are kids involved, my personal encouragement to you would be to not lie to yourself about the fact that something has happened in the lives of your children that was never intended by God to happen. Be honest with yourself about that and and don't pretend that it didn't affect your children. Don't lie to yourself. What you need to most do now is, is come before your heavenly Father in humility and pray for grace for you and your children consistently. You need to stand that gap for your kids in prayer every day. Pray that the enemy would not gain a foothold in their lives through divorce or through the anger that may have resulted from that. Pray, pray, pray for the grace of God on that situation. And if you'll be faithful to do that, and do the best you can to let them know about their true father, their heavenly father, I believe that through the grace of God, their story is not over. And for those of you who are here or listening to this online who are considering a divorce you could avoid, don't forget about the kids. Their life will never be the same. 
if you go through with that divorce. It'll never be the same. If you have a question about marriage or divorce that we didn't answer for you today, man, I'd love to hear from you. And we can just talk discreetly about that. But be sure to email me or write it on the back of your connection card and we'll get in touch. I want you to have an answer from the word of God if you have any questions. All of God's commands are given for our good and they illuminate for us the best way to live, including the best way to be married. When the Lord says, this is how it's designed to work, we would be wise to heed his instructions. When the Lord says, there's a price that's gonna be paid if you get divorced, we'd be wise to heed his warning. And when the Lord says, I'll give you the grace to navigate life's unexpected difficulties, we would be wise to thank him and claim those promises. I hope that we all take what the Lord has said about adultery seriously. And how different our world would be if you still got stoned to death for adultery. (laughs) That's how seriously the Lord takes it. Oh, the sex is good? Even if it's the last thing you ever do in your life before death, it's not that good. That's how seriously the Lord takes it. His word says it disqualifies us from future remarriage if it leads to the breakdown of our present or previous marriage. And that's because God loves marriage. He loves the family, he loves kids. Don't let lust destroy all those good things that God has designed. If you're married today and there's some challenges in your marriage, but there's no abuse, there's no adultery, there's no abandonment, just the junk of two people trying to make it as one. I hope you'll commit to not even discuss divorce. Don't even bring it up as an option. Ask the Lord for more and more grace and allow him to grow you in that grace so you don't miss out on all the good that God wants to do in your family and through your family, through future generations. And if you're in a marriage today where there is abuse or adultery or abandonment, I hope you'll reach out to somebody. And finally, if you've messed up in the area of marriage, in the area of divorce, and there's been sin that has led to the breakdown of a marriage, and you know you were at fault There's grace, there's forgiveness, there's hope, there's healing. Even if a restoration of that relationship is no longer possible because they've moved on, you've moved on, God wants to bring healing to your life because it's not over. And if you've never come before the Lord and just given him that burden and said, God, I'm, I'm sorry, I know this was me, I want to encourage you to do that today because whether you recognize it or not, that sin in your life is holding you back from moving forward in in freedom and wholeness in your new marriage or your potential future marriage. You don't want to be carrying that baggage. You need to allow the Lord to free you from that guilt and that shame and allow him to, to make you whole, allow him to forgive you. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you for your word delivered through your son, Jesus, and thank you that you tell us the truth. Father, uh, marriage and divorce are enormous, enormous things. And we want to stand before you right now in honesty. We don't want to stand before you trying to justify things we've done that we we know are wrong from your perspective. We don't want to stand before you pretending that the wrong choices and decisions we've made that have led to the breakdown of marriages haven't affected us at all. God, we want to be honest and admit that we're broken people who deal with sin natures and are always at risk of doing something profoundly foolish 
that would bring great destruction. So Father, I pray that you would give us grace for the marriages we're in and for the marriages that some of us are going to be led into into the future. Father, I pray that those of us who need to be forgiven would seek forgiveness this morning. And we would recognize that while you hate divorce, you don't hate divorcees. You died for our sins and our mess-ups, including divorce, including adultery. Father, every situation is different, so I'm praying that your Holy Spirit would speak with clarity to anyone who's dealing with an issue that they need to make right this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray you would illuminate the specific steps, the specific things that need to be done to walk out that repentance and make it real. And Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would strengthen every marriage represented in this room. You would bring healing to every wound in every marriage that's represented in this room. And that, Father, our marriages would be godly and they would produce godly children. That would be a blessing to you. If you've joined us together, God, help us not to let man separate us. We just pray that your Holy Spirit would give wisdom and discernment in every area where it's needed, Lord. We love you. We can't do this marriage thing without you, without your help, without your grace. Thank you that you give us your grace if we're faithful to ask for it, Lord. We need it. We need it, Jesus. Just be still before the Lord. And I want to encourage, as always, all of you to take communion today and and thank the Lord that the blood of Jesus brings hope and healing to every situation, forgiveness and wholeness to every situation. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.